0: Can you hear me loud and clear? Yes, sir. Yep, I can hear you as loud and clear as the voice of history itself.
1: <laughs> awesome, sounds great.
0: Yep. So today with me, I have the one and only Ranniti Punjab, Anmol Singh Rode, who's a military historian as well as a historiographer. Two fields which you don't see being so prominent among the Sikhs. And today we are discussing whether the Marathas rebuilt their Bar Saib or not. Now, before we start, I would like to say that historically it's been accepted that war is the continuation of politics through other means. But today we are discussing how the history of politics suddenly transformed into the politics of history. Would you agree with me?
1: Most definitely, I think that is a, a great explanation. I think it it works quite well. These are the confines that we're looking at, right, and it's sort of how stuff sort of moves through i guess I would say the equilibrium of ones looking to express themselves within each nation, and it sort of spills over, right?
0: Yes, it sort of spills over, but then there's that crucial distinction between you know a lie. And effect, I mean, like, if you look at Italy today, many nationalists claim that Hannibal never crossed the Alps, but if you look at the evidence, then you sort of see that he did cross the Alps. And I suppose today we are facing the, we are well confronting the same situation as Sikhs, that obviously there are factions in India who are heavily politically invested in rewriting history and they have found the Marathas as their premier proxies through which they can rewrite whatever history other minorities have. So the claim that the Marathas rebuilt their Barza does not really stand on its feet, but it's one of those claims which has been made so many times that, well, you can't help but get that uh, historian's itch as to try discovering what is right and what is wrong, if you
1: see what I mean. Absolutely, it's just one of those things where I'm sure people have understood this notion that if you hear something so many times over and over again, you're you're bound to at one point think that well that has to be true because it's been said so many times. And this claim in particular has been voiced by propagandists for years now online, especially it always gains traction anytime it comes up. And uh, me in particular, and of course the song around for sure they definitely feel that sort of, well, what's actually going on here? What does this mean? And where does this come from?
0: And it's something which needs to be considered is look at the way how the truth is twisted. We can't deny that the Marathas actually entered the Punjab that they probably did pass close by Amritsar, but taking that the uh, creative liberty, which is used the creative license is so amazing that, you know, suddenly you're arguing that the Marathas actually went and rebuilt their bar sub. and if this continues I wouldn't be surprised if a few years later they're actually arguing well wait a second the Marathas actually did build their bar in the first place.
1: Most definitely I, I mean it's the sort of it's the huge exacerbation as to especially where the setup now allows for something to come up and allows it for it to be in place and that's the sort of problem where this setting is what's really driving it this sort of this sort of nail in the coffin which is more like a screw being hit by a hammer it's not going to work right
0: no it isn't gonna work but unfortunately when people in a majority become so invested in believing these myths that there remains no hope other than the fact that you know rewriting does transpire and i mean a historic example which we can give and i believe it's pretty relevant is that um You obviously know the story of Hannibal, how he crossed the Alps and went into Rome. But amazingly enough, Rome being the superpower it was, they never bothered confronting him openly. They realized that, you know, they can just starve him out, not give him enough attention. And he really didn't want to lay siege to the city because he knew that Roman forces would just, you know, call this behind him and then destroy his rear. And he really couldn't see the strategy of returning back to, you know, his Carthage base and much further in Spain without winning anything substantial in Rome. So what actually happened is that he was sort of caught in a catch-22 situation. The Romans exploited it. 16 years later, and mind my French, he got a pretty massive dose of ass-whooping, which sort of just destroyed him straight away. And the moral of the story is that you never catch a dog by its ear. So he caught the Roman dog by its ear. He couldn't let go because he knew the dog was going to bite him. But then at the same time, he literally couldn't, you know, force himself to let go because for the same reason he knew the dog was going to come after him. So ultimately, what happens is that he's responsible for his own loss because the Romans started copying his tactics against him. But If you read history today, you see that the Romans are reduced to the background as tyrants while Hannibal is made out to be a hero. And I believe that somehow, somewhere along the way, the Hannibal myth has been studied the wrong way because even if you look at the Americans today, they spent 20 years in Afghanistan and and you can say walked away with the same results as Hannibal, which is nothing. They have nothing to show for what they did in the Middle East.
1: Exactly. That is, I've never heard a, a better explanation. You know, Hannibal was bound to Carthage and even him returning with his tail between his legs, you know, it it would have been completely detrimental. And you see this sort of time and time again, where even for, uh, even for like the the uh, American example here, right, 20 years in Afghanistan and nothing to show for it, right? And you would think that, oh, they they would have the power and time and time again this this sort of narrative comes up where it's just not working out and it's it's really it's really interesting to see how that will also unfold over time even analyzing it i know obviously studies now are being done in afghanistan and what the americans truly achieved or what they had not but this is just sort of the lens and the context that we're looking at and i think the the marathas here could kind of kind of fit the context
0: yeah i believe they can fit the context and that's why i usually say because when you study a historical figure because uh some while back, we actually did do an episode on, you know, the Khalsa missiles and the American uh, Founding Fathers and how, you know, even though like three years, three to four years, less than half a decade separated them, there was a massive difference in their vision that the missiles were never able to pull together and form what we can call an effective, long-lasting confederacy in name versus the Founding Fathers did what the missiles failed to do. And there was criticism leveraged at us that, well, you know, you can't criticize Jatadar Jassass Jasa for being visionless. But then at the end of the day, if you build up a historic figure, I mean, you build them up to the proportions of God himself, mm-hmm. you're running the risk of stepping into the same river twice because literally you're positioning yourself to make the same mistakes which that figure ultimately ended up making. And I suppose that's where Western historiography comes in that, you know, for example, if you take General Grant, we know that General Grant was an effective general, but he wasn't an effective politician because he had this problem where he couldn't distrust people. He didn't have that healthy suspicion of people's intents, and those people ultimately, you know, destroyed his career. Similarly, when you have such historic figures like, you know, Baba Jasa Singarubali or anyone else, you need to look at the good and the bad, like with Hannibal. So you don't step into the same river twice. But, you know, unfortunately, it's already too late for the Americans. But the way the Maratha myth is going today, there might be time to save people from themselves who actually believe that they came into uh, Punjab to help the Sikhs. Whereas literally, as you will tell us, they were far from the philanthropists, which they're made out to be. They had less than noble motives to come into the Punjab in the first place.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just looking right into it there, it's it's so interesting that how this something like this could spin about. And um, it's true, the Marathas had very little interest into Punjab to begin with. Um, Raghunath Rao had not even the slightest intention of what he knew was actually getting into. And just strictly avoiding even associating with the Khalsa alone, he'd uh, He'd really missed the chance there and he not only that but he'd also come in to the part where the Khalsa had already seen them as foreign when they were entering to begin with and Adina Beg had done his also hardest while visiting the six Sardars and Jatadar Jasa Singh at uh, Amritsar to try and convince them to get through and uh, they followed but it was something that uh, from the get-go wasn't meant to last and even from the Maratha side alone they tried and um no, I'm not saying they had tried actually. They were quite nonchalant and open about disregarding the Khalsa entirely, and it didn't work in their favor.
0: So, can you give us a brief introduction to the timeline? So, what year precisely did they actually decide to enter Punjab and what led up to that? What were the times like at that particular period for Sikhs as well as the Marathas?
1: Right. So this not this does not come about if there was no Adina Beg, right? So, had there not been Adina Beg, this was most likely not going to happen. I know that's a really tough pill for propagandists to swallow, but it's mm-hmm. absolute true, because Adina Beg was the one who invited the Marathas. Raghunath Rao and Malhar Hol- Holkar who were stationed in Delhi, and he had seen a uh, he had seen a card another card that he could play, and he offered them the invitation of well. Every day's march that you have into Punjab, I will give you 100,000 rupees. Every halt that you happen to have, you will get 50,000 rupees. And we will come and together with the Khalsa, we will overtake Lahore and get Abdali out of here once and for all. That time being represented by his son, Taimur Shah and the the Viceroy uh, Jahan Khan. So, so
0: what was hmm. Adina's intentions? What did he actually aim
1: to do ultimately? So Adina, he was always really under the oppression that he had the potential to establish his own raj. Yep. He was never loyal to any one authority in particular, and you can tell by his movements of constantly just flipping sides. Um, he comes about as a measly soldier, and he rose to be rose to be a, a revenue collector in Kang, particular near Sultanpur Lodi. And within a year's worth of time, he had the entire Tasil to his name. And just a few months afterwards, uh, Zakaria Khan, who was then the Mughal Subedar of Lahore, he appointed Adina Beg as the Hakam, or chief, of the entire Sultan Burlodi district. right? Yep. And so from that, basing around what the Sikh Sangat had going, to just to close the gap in his rise to Hakam, um, the Sikhs had already been quite a decent presence, sp- particularly in the Madja to begin with. and. As we all probably have heard through the childhood stories growing up, the our Akali Singh Foja. they subscribed to the guerrilla-style warfare. They were, you know, in and out of the forest, Machiwara, wherever, and moving about and making quite big havoc on Mughal caravans. And so the Mughal hierarchy had become aware that the Maja in particular is quite a... They were quite reluctant and hesitant to pass through. And so these small vacuums were being created where it became safe to congregate. And Amritsar, for times, was quite safe. And uh, Subedar Zakaria Khan himself... He lifted the persecutive policies in uh, 1733 against the Sikhs. And that's when, you know, the Nawab ship in the Jagir was offered, or the Imperial Land Grant. And it was consisting of the parganas of uh, Deepalpur, I believe, uh, Kanganwal and Jabbal. Yep. And so then at that moment, uh, Sarbat Khalsa was called by then the Third Jatidhar of Akal or traditionally the term back then was Akal Mukhi Sevadar, um, Devan Baba Darbara Singh. Yep. And um, he himself was very hesitant to accept the Nawab ship. He actually did not want to. He did not believe it was a good call, but he recognized the authority of the Sarbat Khalsa, and he saw that many Sikhs were intrigued on actually receiving it. So he himself had stepped down and the Sarbat Khalta there had elected an Anki Singh named Kapoor Singh Virk. Yep. He takes the nawabship, and with the Sangat, they still some tr- maintain some trouble, always congregating at Harman Dasabha A year later, Diman Babadar Bar Singh would pass away and now Jathadar Kapoor Singh, he is now Nawab as well. He splits the Khalsa army into two bodies for main, particularly military convenience. He, he establishes the Buddadal and Tarnadal in 1734 and along with being the fourth Akal Tak also made himself the first Jathadar of Buddadal or the Elderly Brigade in particular. But in order for him to devote time in administering the Sangat, he, and even for further convenience, he had given the daily orders of the Buddadal Brigade to his sponge Biare, uh, Bagh Singh, Gurbaksh Singh, Gurdial Singh, Sham Singh, and Sokha Singh. Yep. And so Zakaria himself, just as Adina Beg would learn from him, being a protege under him, is that he cannot keep this camaraderie on for long. There's always a superficial play that you have to do, and Adina Beg was always looking towards playing his cards. And so just before the Vasaki of 1735. Zakaria Khan had sent a troop to reoccupy the Madja. And he Zakaria in particular was really keen on making sure the Sikhs returned to civil life and disband the military authority that Guru Gobind Singh had deputed to us. And so those infamous policies were reinstated for the Mughal commoner to persecute the Sikh on their own accord. And this would last from 1735 to 1739. And after Sultan Nadir Shah's invasion of Punjab, the Persian the Persian leader in 1739, the six, that's where the vacuums were effectively created in place. And Zakaria Khan, in response, had made Adina Beg the Nazim, or the administrator of the entire Jalandar Doab, with specific instructions to uh, suppress the Khalsa. So, this is particularly from 1734 to
0: 1739. So, ultimately, during this time, all these events have transpired and happened. So, if I remember correctly, what was the situation like in Punjab by 1757 when the Marathas are supposed to have actually come into their Barsad? Uh, I mean, not into their Barsad, but into the Punjab itself. And it's alleged they rebuilt the Barsad around the period. In the lead up to that, we also have the Battle of Golvar or Amritsar, where you know, obviously Baba Deep Singh fights to the death. What is the situation like in Punjab at that time? Because you know, unfortunately, one of the things which Sikh academics have is that they do not rely on, you know, the fact that there are always going to be new sources to find. I mean, how many Sikh intellectuals do you know or historians who after Dr. Singh, actually went out and started looking for new sources? I mean, I know of no one, but do you know of anyone who actually made such an effort?
1: No, that is that's quite difficult otherwise than me and obviously you no know, in particular i'm writing a book on banda singh and i'm i'm out there looking for the most obscure things i could just for something to touch upon it's 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 rare you don't see the sort of acceptance of yep. the new information you know it's always the puratan granth has the authority
0: yep and like dr balwant singh Tillo, who we did a banda singh episode with told us that you know this has unfortunately led to massive stagnation in Sikh. Uh, you know in the Sikh comprehension of history because you know what we have is I believe in the 60s or 70s the Kaltak actually passed a resolution that these Pratan grants based on you know some said this Babaji said that Jatedarji said that oral tradition etc these grants were actually outright banned from being commercialized because of their you know disputed content their controversial content and it was decided that you know Sikh historians and intellectuals need to sit down and form a narrative of Sikh history which can be, you know, digested in modern times rather than, you know, what's being claimed that the seventh guru had so many wives, or, you know, etc., or, you know, some historic Sikh figure had so many affairs, etc. You know, these trivial details which aren't true. However, what's actually happened now in the 21st century is that suddenly this ban or the Consensus behind that decision has been forgotten. And our Sikh historians today are just focused on one thing, which is, you know, milking these ancient grants with, you know, whatever mistakes they have. You know, they're pretty much like emaciated cows. They have over milked these cows for, you know, uh, picturesque terminology. On the other hand, however, if you do consider some things, I mean, especially this time around here, the Baba Deep Singh incident and all that, what, what has happened. Our picture of this is given by, and I'm sure you would agree with me, is thamasnama, Miskeen's Am I correct? That's the primary source which people seem to be relying on
1: nowadays. Yes, the thamasnama. Yes, I was, was looking at that. And uh, it's the sort of stuff that is, I believe it is quite new on the scene as well, if I'm not mistaken. It is something that's just recently been shown attention, correct?
0: Yes. And unfortunately, the thing with Tamas Nama is, you know, it's by Miskin, And we know that Miskeen was pro-Afghan. He was pretty much pro-Muslim, to be honest, at the end of the day, if I actually put it in those terms. And there was obviously that, you know, religious background to this conflict that we're Muslims, there are Sikhs. And even though many Muslims spotted Sikhs in Punjab, many did not. Anyway, what Miskin writes, and there is an overarching pattern here, is that if it's a case of a Muslim victory, he's always going to say the Muslims had less warriors than they actually had to sort of make it, you know, give it that divine overtone that Allah spotted us in winning. Second problem with Maskeen is that Maskeen also, and it seems he did this willfully, he conflates different historic incidents. So, for example, regarding the Baba Deep Singh incident, because this is where all this begins with, he claims that the Sikhs attacked Lahore. The Afghans and the Lahorites beat them back to Amritsar, demolished the Darbar Sahib, and they actually killed their generals down there. Now, other than him, there is no evidence, even fieldwork-wise, that the Sikhs actually marched upon Lahore at that time, and they were beaten back. So it seems this was some sort of a raid which was conducted by the Afghans against the Sikhs and they demolished the Darbar side, Baba Singh came and managed to fight them back to the fringes of Amritsar. And why I'm actually repeating this is because many of these right-wing propagandists claim that because Meskeen says the Sikhs lost, that means the Sikhs had no control of Amritsar at this time, ergo the fact that the Darbar side remained demolished.
1: Absolutely. Um, Thomas Khan was... Uh quite an intriguing character and he would write the ways he did he definitely proliferated much of the the muslim accounts and sharing of what he had to do um miskeen himself i believe he was of it said either armenian or kurdish origin and he was kidnapped by nadir shah's uzbek soldiers in asia minor and brought to punjab at the uh, i think it was at the age of seven and given to mir manu for military service so he had been in the punjab for a while and he'd after Manu had died in November of 1753, he served Murad Begum as a widow, and in the tam- Tamasnama, he writes everything about the lens uh, through the lens of personal knowledge, and he shares um, much of the accounts is biased towards presenting the lowest damage done to Muslim rulers, and he routinely regards the Sikhs as wretches, or as, uh, of course. As to do, as Kafi Khan does as well in his Muntaqab al Lubab. And this is the sort of bias that we're sort of looking at. And so, right wing propagandists, they're willing to overlook that to show, hey, there's something here. And even though it's not of merit, they're going to run with it, right?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, and unfortunately, if you look at Sikh historians themselves, like Surjit Singh Gandhi, even Dr. Ganda Singh, we discussed this in our last episode that, you know, the sources they studied, just because they're historians doesn't mean they're going to be 101% correct because a new generation of historians can always build upon their work. Uh, old preconceptions or, you know, old understandings and comprehensions, conclusions, they're always being challenged. That's the beauty of history. However, uh, Sikhs take an emotional position which usually consists of, you know, threatening to kill people with bullets if they question some of these grants, but Anyhow, looking at the entire Meskina affair, the belief many British mis- military historians have is that Baba Deep Singh, even though he died fighting, he actually won that conflict and the Afghans were forced back towards Lahore. Now, this understanding is borne out by several other things, but the most uh, biggest feather in the Sikh cap or the Sikh of the star is that. Why is it that the Afghans never moved past Amritsar to seal off the border between Delhi and Jalandhar if they had actually won? When the Marathas came, the Afghans were actually in Lahore itself and not close to where the Marathas actually entered the Punjab. It would make sense that if you do win at Amritsar, you march on and seal off the border. And let's be honest down here, they knew what was happening in Delhi, didn't they, the Afghans?
1: Absolutely. The Mughal throne was in shambles and the Peshwa of the Marathas and whatnot were doing their best to fill in the void and they were making partners. There were puppets here. And as far as even as early as uh, Farooq Sayer was around in 1719, this was the sort of situation in Delhi. And um, the Afghans, then Persia, then later Kabul independent, were keeping their eye on this absolutely without a doubt. And the Marathas were just coming in to fill the void and put in their own puppets and install around. Delhi was an absolute shambles. There was no question about it, that there was simply nothing there left in terms of administration.
0: That's right. And so the wiser decision they could have made would be that they, I mean, obviously they knew Adina was a bit of a turncoat. So the wiser decision would have been that either you have some sort of a military bastion at Jalandhar to confront the Marathas as they come in, or anyone who comes in from that side, or otherwise, you actually, you know, sort of colonize all these areas around Amritsar because, end of the day, if you move past Amritsar, you have won at Amritsar, it's only logical that you do move past Amritsar towards Jalandhar. It doesn't make sense that they would just say, oh yeah, we won at Amritsar, let's just stay at Amritsar, because... Strategically speaking, Amritsar only had strategic value if Jalandhar was involved in the mix anyhow. So for them to not even go that far, it indicates one of two things. Either they lost that battle, which is quite believable based on field research, or either that even if they did go past Amritsar, there would be a Sikh presence in their back, in their rear, which would rise up and, you know, envelop them and crush them. They would do the Sikhs would essentially divide, you know, Amritsar and Lahore, so dividing the Maratha supply, uh, sorry, the Afghan supply line anyway. So really putting that matter at rest, we can actually conclude that the Sikhs always had their Bar in their hands, even after Baba Deep Singh.
1: Absolutely. You raise a great point that I myself was thinking about prior to. It's why, why keep Adina Beg around if he is incompetent? And... It sort of shows that, well, if you have a Beg still around, then maybe they did lose the Battle of Golwar, And you just keep the status quo in place and hoping that he still maintains allegiance with Kabul. And so even pushing towards into Jalandhar, and you would still have the Sikh vast swaths of vacuums, right? From Gujaranwala north, and you're going up to Patan court. You still have the Shivalik hills and the Machiwara forest where all the Singhs are they're hiding out and you're gonna you're gonna have a thorn on your side and i believe it's always been shared that nadir shah at one point shared this with a, a young Abdali at the time that there's something that you know you need to keep an eye on this as you move in
0: oh yes obviously and i mean pashiar at that time is supposed to be a Patan majority you know part of punjab none of those Patans seem to have swung into action straight away to help the afghans at all because i mean why would they the afghans had never won if they had they would have said oh, okay right that's it afghans are winning like we know what happened during the vada Lukara. most of these Patan and hindu villagers actually came out to massacre the sikhs when they realized the sikhs were on the losing side but you never see this during that particular period in the late you know 1750. so it indicates there was a sikh victory it's just that unfortunately our historians have found one tamas Nama and they're solely relying on some of the lies propagated by Miskin. I mean, our people do not know how to do textual analysis, and that's a very unfortunate thing.
1: Absolutely. And this goes back to where you had been sharing the uh, the mindset on looking at Puratan Grants. I I tell colleagues, I tell friends sometimes that who may be too substantiated or too affixed upon the the Puratan Grant is hey, they were it's this isn't Gurbani, right? Yep. They what they're doing back then is the exact same thing that we myself are doing now. We are simply looking at the sources that we have available, and we're making we're making use of to clear up the picture. Historiography only gets better with the passage of time.
0: Yes, and, definitely.
1: And you know that how could have Neang Ratan Singh Singpangu. Or Kavi Sintok Singh had access to Muntakhabal Lubab. How would they have had a- access to Ibrith Nama? Or granted, these are sources that I'm sharing that are biased in themselves, but they provide they provide some key insight as to what the actual scene would have been like, what could have been going on, and even going as far back as the as the Amarnama, which was a a Persian stick manuscript written by by Natama Diwar at Nandai during yes. Guru Gobind Singh when he was around. Right, so we would they would not have had access to this. So. It gets better over time, and so it. This staying in that lane of historiography, they are open to critique.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if we move on from there, when does Adina actually approach the Marathas? What does he say to them? Does he say, "Oh, look, well, obviously there is the financial bribe," but how does he actually convince them that you know, come to Punjab, it's going to be good for you? Because we need to consider that the Marathas are actually based in if I remember correctly, close to the Duck Plateau, and you're actually asking them to spread their already thinly stretched supply lines all the way from there to Delhi, straight into Punjab. How did he manage to fold them into coming into the Punjab in the first place? What did he say to them other than, you know, the financial bribe?
1: Absolutely. So, Adina Beg had been playing his cards earlier. Just, I guess, a quick tidbit, just for people to understand his mentality. When Shahnawaj Khan had won out against Yaya Khan for securing the subedari of Lahore, Adina Bek had convinced Shahnawaj to allow Abdali to come in, which would have been, I believe, his third invasion. Allow him to come in. But at the same time, he told the Mughal Sarkar in Delhi that, oh, an oncoming Durrani invasion is here. And so he kept playing his cards like this, right? And he was moving about and he was very cunning. His always goal was to have Raj, particularly in Jalandhar, because that's where he... He had eventually gone on to be stationed. He became the Forgelar of Jalandhar um, around, I believe, March of 1753, if I'm not mistaken. And so with regards to allowing the Marathas to come in, there was a fault definitely in Maratha administration. I mean, you're looking at the fact that what was the need to turn towards Punjab? You have the, you have the East India Company on your back. You had already been working against your oppressors and the Mughals. What is the need? Why turn towards another and face Afghanistan that were coming into a different realm of the Indian subcontinent? And so Raghunath Rao, in particular, was, um, they, they say, I've seen sources say that he was lethargic in his movement. And he, um, he wasn't quite enthusiastic, Holkar in particular as well, his associate, Holkar was not enthusiastic about facing Abdali. Right. Um, I'm sharing this from Kulakarni and I have some these some stuff written here in his book, um, Marathas in the Maratha Country. And um Raghunath had boasted earlier to his comrades South in Pune that hey, i established Raj in the Yamuna Ganga Doab and i increased Maratha authority here and with the he secured placement with the declining Mughal hierarchy. But Raghunath did in fact have some intentions of expelling Abdali from Punjab, but Holkar his associate, Malhar Holkar, was quite against it. Um, and unfortunately, Kulakarni himself makes no mention of Adina Beg contacting them. But Adina Beg had seen that they had just plundered Delhi and he'd offered this um, this payment, this guise to have a clear path into Punjab. And um, they, that's where the story in essence begins. And they must have been compelled to see that, okay, there's something here. Um, they paid no mind to the six. They were not willing to acknowledge the calls at all. Had they even known, it's a completely different story. I doubt they were even fully paying attention. Not being going against propagandists once again, the protectors of the faith, right? But hmm. they were, they were quite, they were quite lethargic. They, they they didn't fully understand what they were quite doing up there because, yeah, as you shared, it's true their resources were spread very thin. Their supply lines were insanely. I don't know how they would have kept this up. Right, because you have the East India Company and you've already faced the Mughals, you hit them north, now turn back and hit the East India Company, but instead they turn towards Punjab. And I believe Adina Beg did his part in sort of luring them in. Whether he knew that the East India Company was there playing into their favor, I, I doubt it. But that's the sort of setup that he has with uh, enticing them to come in and face Abdali and secure loot from Surahind first, then Lahore.
0: And I suppose one thing we need to remember down here is even like, especially if you look at East India Company records, the Sikhs were nobody. The Sikhs were, you know, not nobodies as is claimed today. They were actually, you know, quite fierce warriors. They were actually feared for their prowess. So they had a dog in the fight. Could it be that Adina ultimately sold them ratas this notion that look, with me in the Punjab, there will be someone keeping an eye on Delhi. You guys are, you know, based so far away, rather than march to Delhi, I can do the same for you, you know, just come and sort things out at Delhi for you. But at the same time, he would have been thinking that if I use the Sikhs in my designs to build that empire, basically, they can just turn on me, kick me out of my territories and say, okay, goodbye, buddy, thank you for getting us this, you know, Raj, that basically they will use me as a proxy. So could it be that he knew that the Marathas would definitely go back at some certain point in time from the Punjab, and if he uses them to establish his, uh, you know, governorship or his empire, whatever he wanted to do ultimately, that at the very least he would actually have something to his name after they left, and he wouldn't have to, you know, risk the danger of the Sikhs overtaking whatever it was the Marathas got him?
1: Absolutely, because that is definitely correct, because... With Pune being so far, and of course, he himself knowing that Kabul is so far, he had already experienced his own little piece of Raj, which must have enticed him more to sort of run for getting a part two. Because after Mir Mannu had died on November 3rd, 1753, and then his son held the regency for a while until the next year of May, and Murad Begum was the widow, and she would assume it, but Adina Beg had officially lost connections to Kabul because Mir Mannu had that, he was still a subject under Mannu in Jalandhar. And then, of course, he retained no collection, connection to Mughal Lilli. So he had had what he wanted. He established his Raj in Punjab for a while. He had had the entire Jalandhar Dawab to himself. And um, speaking of the sixth at the time there, then Justice Singh aluwalia and the Dal Khalsa Forge would push an Afghan raid on Amritsar as far back as Lahore and eventually out of Lahore. as April 1754. And so with Adina Beg having this, he got assurances after from the 14th Mughal Bahadur. Then at that point, a Mirza Ambed Shah Bahadur gave Adina Beg the title of Zafar Khan Jung, and later the Hindu Shival- Shivalik Raja of Kangra State submitted to him. So this is a small piece from where he had, from late 1753 to early 1756, Adina Beg was uncontested in having his own exercise of diplomatic rule in Punjab. This diplomatic, obviously, meaning. In accordance to external governments, because on the surface level, we know it was the call system there, right? After Jatadar Nabab Kapoor Singh Ver had passed away, Jatadar Justice Singh Alluwalay takes reign, and he starts establishing the Rakhi system with local panchayats and villages willing to pay for the safety, and they would have safety from the Kahl Safordjan. And so, he wants a piece of that back. And so, looking towards the Marathas, there's these powers are so far away. And so, of course, the Marathas don't know his history. They don't know that he'd been flip-flopping routinely between the Mughals and the Afghans in terms of allegiance. And seeing the Marathas is just another avenue for him, right? So he had called the Marathas because he had already previous to allied the Sikhs. He actually paid once 1,000 rupiah in tribute to Siri Guru Granth Sahib and gave a decent amount of tax collection revenue of the Jalandhar Doab to the Akal Takht. But this was making the Khalsa grow even more from what was already established. The kalsa was there and he had noted this and he knew I need another power to come in, an external power to make sure that whatever comes about from the six stays suppressed under me.
0: And basically he also wanted no oversight over his shoulder, someone looking over his shoulder and tapping him and saying, well, hey, buddy, what the hell are you doing down here? So basically you can say that the Marathas were at Delhi at the right time, right place for him pretty much because after they left Punjab, there was no guarantee they would have continued staying on in Delhi anyway because they would have been heavily fatigued anyhow.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned watching over his shoulder. I mean, at one point, um, early on to his Fojdar ship in Jalandhar, Adina Beg was actually allowing the Sikhs to do what they did, please. And Zakaria Khan's watching his shoulder. Hey, what are you doing? He calls him in the next year and has him tortured for <laughs> the year of collecting taxes and so he was released a year later so adina beg was adina beg was a difficult individual and he knew what he'd wanted from the get go so seeing raghunath and holkar in um, delhi nearby it was just another avenue and of course it shared that raghunath and holkar were quick on leaving punjab they did not want to stay in punjab anymore they um the peshwa then was raghunath's older brother uh, balaji bajirao and he had commanded Raghunath, his brother, to state, you are going to administrate Punjab. Raghunath said, no, I'm returning to Pune. You put whoever you want. I don't want to be here anymore. Holkar follows him. And I believe someone named Tataji Shinde eventually is put into place. And um, he's shared by uh, one source I've mean, in particular as an inexperienced soldier. Right. So this is the sort of scene that we're looking at. It's just it's completely unorganized mess on the diplomatic level. Surface level, the Khalsa is there, without a doubt.
0: Without a doubt. And I suppose what happens is that March 21st, 1758, this is around the time when that three-way alliance is formed between Adina, uh, the Khalsa, and the Marathas. Am I right?
1: Yes, it is It is uh, February, yes, of 1758.
0: In yep. essence, yes. Yeah. Yep, so around that time. And it's interesting, and I apologize that I actually initially mentioned Garewal's hokam Nama, which he found being 1761. It's actually dated 12th April 1759. So yeah. one year before that, it seems what's happened is that Jasa Singh Walia actually managed to come to Sirhind with around 10,000 kalsa, you know, cavalry. And the Marathas arrived around that time, Adina arrived around that time. Now considerably one thing which needs to be, you know, thought of here is that Aluwalia passed by Amritsar before he arrived around Sirhind at that time, and if Sirhind had been under you know Afghan control anyway, especially given that it's claimed that in late December the Afghans you know destroyed their bar Sahib and took over, but we know that they did destroy their bar Sahib and Baba Deep Singh went to you know, at the very least get the people who were affected, the Sikh victims, away from them. If he hadn't driven them back, then how is Aluwalia even managing to pass by Amritsar to get to Sirhan? You know, that's something which gives you food for thought.
1: Absolutely. And so this is 1758 we're talking about. The missiles are there. They have control on the ground level. The Iraqi system is in effect and is working completely fine towards the Aqal takht right? They have the avenue to reach, of course, um, some, uh, it's I believe around March 21st, no, March 8th, 1758, is when Raghunath approaches Sirhind from Delhi, Adina Beg comes through from Jalandhar, and the Dal Khalsa of makes their way from Amritsar. And so all three forces are here opposing Af- reportedly Afghanistan, but where is the administration there to stop them? That There's no local tasirdars or anything in the way. So they made their way there, and of course they lay siege 20 days later on the 21st is when they uh, they take Sirhind Subedar, Abdul Samad Khan, who was the Afghan subidah of Serhind at the time, he capitulates, and the coalition army wins the siege.
0: But it's also at Sirhind where the trouble really starts between all three, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. The trouble itself, which propagandists hate mentioning, I'm sure they don't mention it because they might not even know it, um, is that this is where the trouble comes from. It is over the distribution of the loot from Sirhind. So the six, arguing on the basis of the knowledge of the land, took, already took a greater share of the plunder. And Ragnat and Holkar and the Marathas complained to Adina Beg, and they demanded a share that was proportionate to the number of troops in each army. So Adina, as he had brokered the alliance, had to broker a peace between the two forces here at Surhind, which shows the agitation and the, um, the I guess I would say, the, the, not the goal. The goal of the Marathas is to save the Khalsa. It's just not there, and so on the surface level, it's just not there. And so he brokered a peace between the two forces. Adina, on his intelligent side, perhaps still his cunning side, opted to give the larger share of the loot to his neighbors in the Khalsa Pant. and then he proposed to maintain peace between the two, that the Sikhs would remain two marches ahead of the foreign Maratha army, and this deal was accepted. And then they would march towards occupied Lahore, uh, Afghan occupied Lahore, and Nowhere near Amritsar.
0: But you know what's amazing down here? There are two loopholes in the story down here which the right wing propagandists actually ply like their life depends on it. The first one is that Shivaji Maratha started fighting against Aurangzeb after Aurangzeb obviously refused to allow him a vassalage because Shivaji wanted to be employed by Aurangzeb and to quest, uh, capture Peshawar. Aurangzeb pretty much said, No, I don't trust a man like you get lost. And, you know, obviously that's where the fight begins. Now, amazingly enough, Maratha sources, and you are using primarily Maratha sources, am
1: I correct? Yes, I've been looking at a a whole slew of um, Maratha textbooks ranging from um, the first ever in 1826 to what even uh, Hindu-based authors are writing now. So
0: basically, other than the few right-wing propagandists, which are basically the louder ones, there is no mention of the Marathas rebuilding their barsab in any of them. Am I right?
1: Absolutely not. There is no recollection. There's no evidence presented at all.
0: Because, I mean, if you look at the pre-19th century Maratha records, it doesn't even seem that they're aware of the existence of the Sikhs in the first place, as to who a Sikh is, what constitutes Sikhi, etc., So, first question which arises here is that in their heyday, when they actually began fighting under Shivaji, Marathas had a lot of strategic goals, they had tactical victories. Why did no Maratha chief even ever mention in passing that they need to go to Delhi to save Guru Teghabad?
1: Absolutely. That is a great point you mentioned. Exactly.
0: Right, second issue down here is that we know that the Maratha-Rajput conflicts, the Rajputs always worn out over the Marathas. We know that uh, Jai Singh was the one who finally routed Shivaji and forced him to retreat from the field of battle. Shivaji fled, but Jai Singh finally managed to capture him. Anyhow, when you have Guru Gobind Singhji, you know, warring against the Shivalik Hill chiefs, you have Punjab, which is basically on the throw of a rebellion. Given that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh Ji is identified as one of the most dangerous men in the region by the Mughals. Why is it that no Maratha, you know, even little company or detachment, was sent over to help the Guru against the, you know, Shivalik Hill chiefs or even against the Mughals? Why did no such communication ever take place if the Marathas really wanted to help the brothers in faith?
1: Absolutely. That is such right. a great point, and yep. just just a quick add, a little tidbit. I believe that's where they use the guise of Banda Singh still remaining a Hindu and not uh, having an Amrit Sanjad. Yeah. Yep.
0: Now you know, Dr. Balwant Singh till already discovered all these Rajput sources, which explicitly mention, as well as Persian sources, that Banda Singh was a Sikh, his own testimony is he's a Sikh, and at the end of the day, he was Amritdhari with the kakars Now, of course, all this was challenged by Hari Ram Gupta, but he hadn't seen those sources. But the problem which begins is, a, why there were no marathas who came to help Banda Singh? B, if Banda Singh was actually a Bairagi, what happened to his you know fellow Bairagis who were supposed to help him? and C, why is it that you know multiple Sikhs are executed alongside Banda, but we see no Hindu or Muslim being you know slaughtered down there. Even the king of Nahan was later forgiven and led off by Jahandar Shah for failing to catch Banda Singh?:
1: Absolutely. And you see this sort of for Banda Singh in particular, it's that he had allowed even Muslims, there was a, a letter that had reached uh, Bahadur Shah that uh, Banda Singh had allowed the Muslims of Batala to um, uh, live out their daily their daily lives and to commit to their practices. So it's, it's I don't understand where this comes from.
0: And. You see the Marathas are skipping around Punjab at that time. And then as you mentioned, why is it only around 1758 with the East India Company at their backs? They're having issues with the British. They're having issues with the Delhi that they suddenly decide, well, look, we will just go and open a third front. It doesn't make any sense unless they went there for financial gain. Now, fourth thing down here is that the Sikhs are two days ahead, but neither Maratha sources, nor mughal sources nor british sources nor afghan sources themselves or any other subcontinental source at the time mentions that there was ever any sign of this coalition entering amritsar departing amritsar fighting at amritsar because you know how it's claimed that the Marathas has rebuilt their Barsa. well obviously there is a caveat down here that the allegation is sikhs lost the battle there were no sikhs in amritsar so how is it that this coalition is even able to pass unmolested from Amritsar itself because it makes sense for the Afghan cavalry to be brought into the open plains of Amritsar against the Marathas?
1: Absolutely. There is just simply no way that they could have gone by through Amritsar. There is, we have the Tamasanama, right, which granted um, as we already established is quite biased, but Online, it's reckoned that most of the records of the movements of the Marathas in particular, granted, Damas uh, Khan, right, he's in Punjab, Miskin is in Punjab, and he's aware of this. He's he, Prior to, he had already taken part in several of previously Mirmanun's and then Adina Beg's campaigns against the Sikhs. And the movements that he had made note of, of where the Marathas were going from, it was February of 1758 to January 1759, is practically 99% accurate. And it is not once mentioned that the Marathas had made their way to Amritsar, willingly, unwillingly, and they themselves, because it's been already established that they were completely in the mindset of disregarding the Khalsa because they're here on Adina Bek's behalf, right?
0: Yep. And amazingly enough, what happens is if you look at the history afterwards, the Marathas only leave a very small token presence in Punjab under a very inexperienced general. There is no you know, one thing is there are no monuments built if this is all about Hindu Shahi that, you know, Sikhs were Hindus and there was Hindu Shahi. No monuments built to that effect. No administrative changes made to that effect. No religious changes made to that effect. It's, uh, it's almost like they just wanted to be there just to wipe Adina's face and make him smile pretty much as a sign of gratitude. And the numbers they leave, I believe it was somewhere between 10 to 50 thousand. All these Numbers indicate that they wanted to pull out of the Punjab when you know Adina died or when he lost interest in them.
1: Definitely. Um, they had left. I recall now, um, it was Sabaji Sinde, who Kulakarni writes as an inexperienced Sardar to take over the administrative uh changes in the Punjab. And so they'd secured uh, finally, on April twentieth, some sources say April eleventh, but seventeen fifty eight, the the coalition forces have taken, um, have taken Lahore, which the Khan himself acknowledges as a coalition army. Doesn't say that it's explicitly a Maratha army, and so they had secured, um, a tribute that Adina Beg would continue paying for however long that he stayed aligned with Pune, right? And so Raghunath Rao and Malhar Holkar were ecstatic upon leaving. They did not want to remain in the Punjab no more. They were strictly on the guise of running back towards Pune. And so, uh, Shabaji Shinde was eventually replaced. Uh, Bajira had put in Dattaji. And um, Holkar too, according to Kulakarni, he didn't want to remain in Punjab. And so, Adina Beg was just the guise of just putting him in there, right? Kulakarni says that um, Abdali returned with ease in 1759 on the instance of Najib Khan to Delhi. And uh, um, sorry, Abdali, yeah, this is what we're talking about and so the Marathas are driven out uh, just on the a, on a superficial guys, it's shared that um, a a, battalion, a few battalions of just a few hundred Maratha soldiers were stationed in Attak and Peshawar um, what is that going to do? that's not going to do anything
0: you actually make quite a valid point down here that's pretty much just challenging Abdali even if he doesn't want to a script that come here come here and our rear ends to us
1: Exactly. Um, it, ju- it just doesn't make sense. The administrative changes that, or if not changes, then just tactics, the strategies that they're employing here. Gulakarni um, um, writes that um, Pune was seeking to collect around 10 million rupees for compensation of Raghunath's, quote, unfruitful and expensive activities in the north. And so
0: basically the north being a euphemism for the Punjab. Yes. That's that's a lot of money to lose in the Punjab.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And so um, it was once shared that um, what I was looking at in particular, well, what defines exercising power? And so um, you're looking at the sort of, well, you can make claims. It's one thing to simply just claim territory, as the majority of the online Indian propagandists are doing. They're saying the Marathas had effectively held Punjab. But... Some propagandists take it a step further in saying that the Marathas had also exercised power and authority in Punjab, but when and how? An empire can just superficially appoint a governor of a province, and even on the ground level, no political authority was being exercised. So Raghunath, rather than appointing a Maratha as the governor of Punjab, appointed a Dina Beg, and Adina had remained as an independent, only nominally, nominally retaining uh, diplomatic ties with the Marathas. So... I personally believe that the best way for anyone to actually determine that an entity is exercising power in a region is economic, and that is taxation, right? You're having, yeah. you're exercising, you're leaving taxes, you're having revenue connection. So the Maratha taxation system was unique in the sense they had what they called, I believe, is a jalt uh, with local kingdoms and princedoms, and they utilized it. Um, I'd look, I was looking towards Britannica and some people, they don't see Britannica so much, but what makes Britannica great is that only uh, qualified editors and educators can actually edit it. And so Britannica shares that, quote, the Marathas claimed that it was a payment that involved, in return, protection from other attacks. But few princes, Hindu or Muslim, saw its incidents in light. Since rulers always tried to collect their revenue in full, this impost, in addition to the regular revenue demand, was regarded as oppressive. It did make... It did much to make the Marathas unpopular throughout India among Hindus and Muslims alike. So yeah. this is the child's tax, tax being collected. And I, there was an interesting tangent here that I'd seen that in April, 1751, the Nawab of Awadh or historically Oudh state, Shuja Urdala who was aligned with the declining Mughal Darbar in Delhi, on his own accord, made the Peshwab Marathas, Balaji Bajirao Bajira at the time, he made him the Mughal governor of Agra and Ajmer states, while also deputing the Marathas to collect their child's taxes in Sindh and Punjab. So, take a look at this. So, we have a second-tier external authority, right? The Nawab of Oudh is still under Delhi. A second-tier external authority had given another first-tier external party the right to collect taxes in Punjab, right? <laughs> yep. But I'm sourcing this from an actual uh, conference proceeding, a seminar that was held at the Shivaji University. Uh, It was at the Maratha History Seminar from May 28th to the 31st in 1970. And Dr. Shididam Sharma, himself a Maratha historian, uh, spoke out and wrote on the seminar that, quote, but the treaty soon became a scrap of paper as the Marathas took no step to perform the service which they had undertaken, end quote.
0: Obviously, because they didn't really want to be in Peshawar. And I believe that Abdali only left a small contingent, which was pretty big at the time anyway. But for him, it would have been small at Lahore just to keep an eye on the Punjab while he then went back to Afghanistan. And one thing to remember is that Abdali wasn't, you know, only invading India at the time, the subcontinent. He was invading Kiva, Bukhra and many other places. There were problems at his own court. He went back there and Peshawar must not have had such a strong, you know, contingent. Or could it be that he set an ambush for the Marathas to see what they would do? And when he saw that they were so less in numbers, he decided to attack them. And I guess the only problem here was that, you know, his son and were vacated Lahore. Otherwise, he could just have enveloped them and crushed them straight away because he would have been well aware that they weren't going to come from Pune. To, you know, no one was going to send reinforcements from so far away to save the few Marathas, you know, caught between him and uh, Lahore. And at the end of the day, there wouldn't be so many in the first place, even if they did manage to make it into the Punjab to confront him, they would have been exhausted, you know, lambs to the slaughter.
1: Right. So this is suggesting that the Marathas on their own had what propaganda's share. Uh, pushed and chased the afghan forces from lahore all the way to attak and Peshawar um that didn't happen they had stopped at lahore and just as whatever forces were remaining or whatever afghan forces were leaving they had, they had obviously vacated and should there have been those few those few small battalions uh, as far as i know they were just stationed in attak and peshawar for the for the appeasement of Beg. Mm-hmm. because really
0: it seems they were sightseeing but they got a ass whooping handed to them by Abdullah. you know almost like when the cat's away the mice come out to play well then the cat did come back suddenly
1: absolutely and what put Afghanistan in such a in such an interesting place is that as you had shared um, with them raiding in the north in central Asia Bukhara, Kokand and Kiva um Afghanistan was in such a place that they did not have the natural resources that they could have. They constantly had to rely on pillaging periphery lands. And so that strained Abdali for constantly going into Central Asia and then coming into the Punjab and further into India. Um, He couldn't keep doing this. And so he had problems in his Darbar back in uh, Kabul. And so he needed to be back. And so... With not exercising still too much authority even in the Punjab, because remember the Khalsa's on the ground level, there the raki systems in place, right? And so you're talking about villages even by Sialkot and Gujarnavala where the Chakia were doing their thing. This is the, these are areas that they're losing revenue from. But there's not it's out of Abdali's hands because he can't always be there. And so Adina Beck had seen this as a guise to hey I can break off from Kabul. I don't see the Akaltak being too strong, although the six are are not plentiful. They're they're quite they're quite courageous, but the I don't want to have them take that upper hand in us two doing it alone. Let's call in Raghunath. Let's call in the Marathas and get something done. And this is the uh, this is the nature of the things where propagandists just cannot accept that um Adina Beg was the one brokering the alliance. Uh six themselves and six and Marathas were not in themselves even acknowledging each other.
0: And I believe that the Marathas finally, you can say, fully vacated Punjab around 58, mid-58 58, June, July, and those few token garrisons were changed out by Abdali around 60, 61, if they weren't, you know, destroyed. But then, interestingly enough, J.S. Garewal, the hukam nama he found, I understand it was him at least, but might have been found by another historian, but he also studied it and sort of made it as popular as it is today. 12th April, 1759, it has a damaged seal, but otherwise it's been authenticated to be from that time. I believe it might have been written by the Shi Dimasal because, you know, they were in charge of Gurdwaras at the time. And basically mm-hmm. it's addressed to shi Akal Kalsa. Khalsa, uh, mentions three prominent Sikhs of Patan, And they are charged by the Dal Khalsa. So it's based on the authority of the Dal Khalsa to collect rupees 125 from their local Sangats and dispatch it to the Calcutta and Shri Darbar side, because there has been extensive damage wrought by the Afghans in 1757, and the Darbar side still needs to be fully, you know, renovated. So that's a critical piece, because if you see that 1758 entry of the Marathas, for a time, things, you know, did not cool down, but they were a bit less hot than they initially were when the Afghans were in Punjab. But, you know, why then are Sikhs actually requesting? Why is the Dal Khalsa requesting that Sikhs from outside Punjab and in Punjab collect funds and send it to the Darbar side because the Darbar side explicitly hasn't been touched in all this time to be fixed? Why write
1: that? Exactly. These things just do not add up. And along with that Abdali invasion, it was in May of 1757, uh, the Raum Rani Killa was also. Uh, was also, he laid siege to that. And of course, the Sri Sirovar was also defiled. And um, this Hokumnama Nama right here is showing that the Dal Khalsa was requesting it themselves for the Sangat to do it. And with, of course, no correspondences of Marathas even laying a foot near Amritsar, how, how could this have happened? This just doesn't add up of them being there and saying, hey, we rebuilt Darbar Sahib for the sake of Dharma.
0: And I guess the greatest feather and error, the star here, is that no Maratha historian or primary source even mentions it themselves, that this is what's happened, that they went and rebuilt Darbar Sahib. I mean, my personal belief is that if you look at the Marathas, they were lost in considerations of, you know, caste, creed, and all that, you know, Vedic prejudice, and I believe it Jadunath Sarkar who actually mentions that, you know, we were talking about Joth, that Joth was just an extortion tax that never actually guaranteed that they would come and save you. Verse mm-hmm. Raki done by the Sikhs, it was an you know, it was almost natural for Khalsa Sardars and their families to die fighting for the people who paid Raki anyway, because it was a citizenship tax that the state would protect the citizen for paying the tax. So in a way, the Marathas did not have any solid You know, ideological or philosophical basis with Sikhs' head. And that being said, to me, it seems highly unlikely they would have actually stopped at any religious site in the Punjab. I mean, there's no mention of them even stopping at Hindu religious sites in the Punjab. They probably Mm -hmm. did not even consider Punjabi Hindus as being Hindus like themselves.
1: Yeah, there's no evidence of them stopping at Mathura or Tanesar, which is nearby Kurukshetra. No, none of that.
0: Nothing. And interestingly enough, now this is where things are going to get pretty grim, and we're going to mention a few names. So, Sikri, Sikh Research Institute in the United States, I believe that's their name, and it's headed by Sardar Harinder Singh. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, Sikh Research Institute. Now, we have a Singh on Twitter who runs a handle called Jatinder Tweets, and mm-hmm. Jatinder has actually pointed out multiple times, he's tagged Sakri multiple times that you have reproduced an article in which you cite Sardar Kapoor Singh claiming that Maratha has paid, I mean, rupees 12.5 lakhs or 125 lakhs, somewhere along those in lines that for the rebuilding of the Darbar Sahib, that they actually came and you know, bowed in front of the Shri Guru Granth Sahib, took Prashad, listened to you know, kirtan and Ed Langar did their stuff and went over. You know, almost like you get all these foreign politicians coming into Gurdwara and making election speeches.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Now, no Persian source mentions this. No Sikh source mentions this. No sources mention this. And it's amazing, with all due respect to Sardar Kapoor Singh, Sardar Kapoor Singh had a very, uh, very interesting view of Sikhi and the role of Sikhs and Sikh history but ultimately most of these views do not really hold up if it hadn't been for the Anandpur resolution Sardar Kapoor Singh would just have been another national professor of Sikhism, and kudos to the man for taking a political stand but you know like I said before no historian ever is going to be 101% correct we will always find errors in their works Sardar Kapoor Singh makes no mention of any source from which he got this Maratha mythos. And Jatinder has argued multiple times, has tried telling Sekri, has tried contacting them to take their article down because the right-wing propagandists pull that article out every time this debate ensues. But leaving aside where Sardar Kapoor Singh got this information from, there is one particular source which mentions that the Marathas made obeisance at Saib, the They paid their respects, but they never rebuilt it. And there are certain problems with this text as, you know, you would fully well know. And the first one is it's almost written a hundred years after this event. Second problem is that it mentions no sources. Third problem is that out of all these thousands of texts, that's the only source to mention this. And the fourth problem is, and here's the greatest irony, because, you know, the right-wing propagandists have this religious thing going on. It's written by a Muslim, Mughalophile employee of the British East India Company.
1: That's what I find the absolute best. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. So this is where the first claim of the Marathas offering a payment to rebuild Armandusab, It comes in September of 1854, uh, a story named uh, Mufti Aliuddin Lahori in his book, Ibrat Nama. Yes. And so Aliuddin was an employee of the uh, British East India Company. He would served where various postings at Baalpur, Ferozpur, Ludhiana, and I believe Motan, and even Sindh before he settled down in Lahore. And it's noted that Ali's father, Mufti Khairuddin, was also an East India Company servant. And he had originally planned to write such a publication himself, but he had died before he had the chance. And so Colonel Wade, who was the East India Company director in ludhiana then deputed Ali to finish the task. And so Ali dedicated the book, which he had written, *Ibratnama*, Nama, to the British commissioner of Lahore, Charles Rakes. And Ali in himself, along with the routinely scrutinizing non-Muslim groups, also plays favorites when he's writing about the British when they annexed the Khad Raj in 1849. And so looking at our timeline in particular, Ali goes into detail about like the Marathas visiting Amritsar, exchanging gifts with six Sardars. No sources mentioned whatsoever. This comes 90, 96 years after the coalition army seized Lahore and that anyone writes something like this. So Ali is flawed in his writing. As I noted, um, it's really interesting that Ali writes things like these because you have to look at just a quick situation what was happening within the writing core of the East India Company. Five years earlier, before this book was written by Ali, Joseph Davy Cunningham, a Scottish soldier and historian with the East India Company, he completed his own monumental book. It's quite big for the time on the history of the Sikhs in Punjab up until the final battles of the Second Anglo Sikh War. He wrote this in 1849. And so, Cunningham, in his book, he openly discusses the fact that there were actually active traders in the Lahore Darbar, which were corresponding with British forces. And so um, uh, the servants and the East India Company learning about this after the publication, his superiors had fired Cunningham and they removed him from East India Company service. So Ali, without a doubt, he had saw this and he'd worked on kissing up towards his superiors so that he could keep his posting. And that includes opting to share lies in his work.
0: And I suppose he would have been warning the British. I mean, look, the man is a Mughalophile. His entire Ibrat Nama is this one big moan for all. The Mughals were so great, but these blasted Sikhs took them out of the picture. And he would probably, see, Ali would have seen how depressed the Sikhs were that they lost their Barsad. The British gave it to, you know, Dasi and Nirmala months. He would have seen how crestfallen they were that they lost their sovereignty and what best way to injure Sikh aspirations to sovereignty than, you know, take the Bar Saib away from them, almost abducted from the Sikhs. And he would have just, you know, put salt on their wounds by saying, well, wait a second, you know, white people, watch out for these guys, the Marathas and the Sikhs who took out, you know, Mughal rule in Punjab because he would have he his claim if you look at it primarily his claim seems to be that adina and the sikhs got together and then the marathas were invited into the punjab almost like you know he's giving credit to the sikhs for what adina did because basically adina was a fellow muslim so he couldn't really go against adina Kuri. and intriguingly enough he's blaming the sikhs for letting the marathas into the punjab and he's saying watch out this is what they do at darbar side they get your enemies over they sit down and form coalitions do not let them do it. It's almost like he's justifying what the British did to the Sikhs.
1: It, clearly, and it, it, it makes sense for him to use the Maratha guys because, well, the British, should they read his his work and they'll see that, well, we had already dealt with the Marathas. 1818, they were already out and we had done it. So if the Marathas were up here helping, then it's something that we themselves don't need to pay too much mind to specifically with respect to the Marathas because we have already subjugated them. So now it's time to, hey, the Sikhs had called them up. And so this is something that you, as the British, you know, Kolkata via London, need to be aware of and pay attention to.
0: Obviously. And, you know, what I find ironic down here is when the Marathas came into Punjab, they never stopped cow slaughter. Uh, sorry, Adina Bega, Muslim, the head of Punjab. They did all contrary to what the right-wing, you know, propagandists portray about them. And here is the greatest irony, they are actually relying on the work of a Muslim historian who disparages the Marathas as well to claim they rebuilt their barsa when the Marathas did not even go through Amritsar.
1: Exactly. And so these are questions that need to be asked, right? So if the Marathas had came in as the saviors of Sikhi, then why wasn't a Sikh named the or of vizier of Punjab to be acknowledged by Pune, right? So. If they wanted to establish the survival of Sikhi, does it not make sense to have a Sikh Subedar of the entire Punjab? And the whole basis of this not doing this is that simply because the Marathas did not care about the Sikhs. They only came solely on Adina Beg's request. And Adina Beg had requested on the assistance of the Marathas and offered a sizable pay. Raghunath was indebted to him and returned the favor. Adina Beg, now as the Maratha line Subedar, he's become under them, and Raghunath had no need to appease the Sikhs because the Sikhs had never called for Maratha assistance to begin with, and so it is this lack of Sikh acknowledgement from the Marathas that fundamentally shows the Marathas had no imperative to uh, collaborate with the Sikhs.
0: No, obviously not, and if you look at the contemporary primary sources of the time, the people of Punjab, including Muslims and Hindus, they actually saw the Sikhs as a home-growing force fighting for their rights and the Marathas as foreign occupiers if you look at the sources written by many Muslims and Hindus at the time, the Marathas were just another, you know, form of tyranny which came from outside the Punjab to wreak havoc on their daily lives.
1: Yes, definitely. The Khalsa openly acknowledged that these are just foreign invaders and they have they have no sense here, they have no place here, they have no being here. Right? And so they've been called by Dina Beg, whom the Khalsa always, themselves, were always aware of that this is a man who is not Always to be trusted, but we're we're getting by. And yes, the Khalsa openly were saw them as hostile. Did it, it was in fact the Marathas are invading forces in Punjab. They are not no liberators.
0: Obviously. And I suppose the ultimate conclusion here is that the Marathas did not even step on the roads to Amritsar. So how could they even rebuild the Darbar
1: Sahib? Yeah. So Indian propagandists they, they claim this lies simply that the Marathas rebuilt Durbar Sahib and so this requires three facts to be true one Raghunath and Malhar and the Marathas had to visit Amritsar which we've debunked two Raghunath and Holkar and the Marathas take part in the reconstruction which there is no evidence of and three Raghunath and Holkar and the Marathas offer the infamous payment of what Sardar Kapoor Singh puts as 100,000 rupees, um, or sorry, 125,000 rupees. I want to just take a quick look back at what Siddhartha Kapoor Singh is saying because what Jitinder is sharing is absolutely true. Um, I have the quote here um, in where uh, Siddhartha Kapoor Singh, it was in a September 1984 paper. It's a 22-page essay. He quickly wrote, quote, "Uh, it's the golden temple and its geopolitical status. So he writes, quote, In April of 1758, when the combined forces of the Marathas and the Sikhs had succeeded in driving out the country, the Afghan occupation forces, the Golden Temple was rebuilt and its holy lake cleared up through the labor of the enemy prisoners of war and under the direct supervision of the famous Maratha chief Raghunath Rao and Malhar Rao Holkar, who then humbly made an offering of 125,000 rupees at the Golden Temple and received ceremonial robes of honor from its head priest. These Maratha chiefs were well understood that the restoration of the true theopolitical status of the Golden Temple was an integral part of the grand national project of regaining liberty of the people and the freedom of India, end quote. There's no footnote or reference to given to back this claim. There actually isn't a single reference in the paper at all. Um, I genuinely have no clue as to why Sir Kapoor Singh would make this claim. Um, in essence, he's speaking on the cleaning up of the Herman Sahib after Abdali's desecration in May of 1757, but no record exists of the Akal Takhtar Jatada Singh himself receiving such a donation, and so no record exists of them even visiting Amritsar, so um, just, I kind of wanted to just quickly just take a look at what Sir Dar Kapoor Singh, the situation that was happening at the time, and why he may have written this, I can't um, fully speak on his behalf. But I believe that there's something that was happening here at the time. So just two months before Kapoor Singh had written this paper, it was the Battle of Amritsar had taken place uh, June 1st to 10th of 84. And I believe in an attempt to call for national unity and show New Delhi the like, historic implication of what they had just done, Sadar Kapoor Singh wanted to show not the Sikhs or Punjab, but rather mainstream India, the importance of the Harbandr Sahib. And like, as for centuries, since the Maratha empire had been acknowledged by mainstream India as a precursors for the subcontinent's protection, Kapoor Singh wanted to show India the respect the ancestors had for the Harmandir Sahib and hint at what the Indian army had done months or, earlier was both morally and historically wrong. Um, so this is just what I believe. Um, it's the only rationale I can attribute to him making such a claim, but simply put, he lied. And so, this is completely false, and I genuinely think that he'd fabricated a lie for Indian appeasement. This is the only blemish I really see in Siddharth Kapoor Singh's great career. And so, as we mentioned, the Sikh Research Institute now loves using this claim of Kapoor Singh too actively, and it's it's quite disturbing.
0: I believe at the end of the day, the thing is that and more people like me and you, if we ever get into those prominent positions in life, we can make up a lot of things, you know. We can take creative liberty with the truth, but the power brokers, even at that time, I mean, let's just look at the government at the time, the political bureaucracy at the time, the military bureaucracy at the time. They would surely have studied the same texts we are studying, you know, uh Besam, and all these others who wrote about Marathas. They pretty much would have dismissed it straight away that, look, this is just another lie. He's trying to appease everyone. End of story, just ignore him. But ultimately, that lie or that, you know, fiction has been weaponized against us to the degree that, you know, this is where we all need to sit down and say that our historians are not 101% perfect like the gurus. They have made mistakes. We need to point out the mistakes as well. But today what I see is people arguing that Dr. Gandhi Singh was 101% perfect. And, uh, you know, Sardar Kapoor Singh was 101% perfect. But when you have things like this, are you really going to accept they're 101% perfect if they're total lies or, you know, total misunderstandings?
1: Exactly. And this also expands to what are revered in the Puratan grants as well. This is a sort of reality here that we've caught ourselves in. Um, I find it that when you're looking at historiography and looking at the Sangat in particular, um, there's a really a need now for what we had experienced, um, not necessarily from the Singh Sabha Morcha, but rather the historians that arose from it. And that sort of era of when you have Karam Singh historian, Baikan Singh Nabba, you have all these people working. And that was yeah, well over hundred years ago now. And we are we are struggling for another wave. We deeply need it.
0: And I mean, I know I'm going to say a very controversial name here, but in two thousand and one, if I remember correctly, there was an issue where the Akal Takht, the Jatidar of Akal Takht, Jugindar Singh Vedanti publicized the Gurdilas Pachai chevi and there was a massive uproar, even to the point when he later went to the States, there was a massive fist fight in a restaurant or something, you know, Sikhs always ripping each other's the stars off. Mm-hmm. The text was the Gurbilaas Patshah Sixth, as I said before, and much serious issue was taken against it, and one of the voices which emerged at the time was very controversial, that was Gurbach Sinkalav Khan. Now, Obviously, we know that his views on the Dasam Grantha did not align with many people, and there was much conflict with this man. However, I did read a little pamphlet he wrote at the time about, you know, historic grants and how we should use them, and... He pointed out that, you know, there was a reason why these grants were mitigated, because these are raw sources, right? They're unrefined. We're literally dealing with the byproduct of someone's prejudices, their bias, their perceptions. And we need to form a coherent narrative out of it, which agrees with the truth and not necessarily with someone's perception. So... When these grants are read out in the Gurdwaras given to the Sangats and you're using these grants to form a picture of Brahet or what, you know, Sikh history is, there's obviously bound to be massive problems. Obviously, there will be much conflict, but that conflict will become even more exacerbated when the opposing factions, when non-Sikhs, start using those same texts to attack Sikhi. So what are you going to say then that you know, the Gurus never gave those offers, Darshan, you know, people claim that so-and-so historic grant was written after Guru Gobind Singh Ji gave 52 Darshan to the writer, or you know, Guru Nana came back to visit the writer and inform him about this and that. How are you going to hold that up to someone who obviously does not believe in that because it's not true, but secondly, if your grant is really, you know, downplaying Sikh history, what does it say about it in the first place?
1: Exactly. This is this is the trouble that comes with this. It's been so as you shared, you know, kathavajiks are sharing this and sharing that constantly. We're we're combing through these grunts, and it becomes especially when you're exposed to it from childhood, it becomes exposed to you in a way that like, well, it has to be true. And this isn't gurbani that we're talking about. I stress this to a lot of people is that, you know, particularly of course I'm talking about Prachan Pant Prakash and uh Swurish Prakash, that this isn't Gurbani. They were simply historiographers. And what we are doing now is is no different. What Gandha Singh had done, what Pai Khan Singh Naba had done, and of course he'd written Gurshabad Ratnakar Mahankosh, stuff like this. This it's prone to critique. And we are simply in a phase where historiography grows over time. And we need to take a step back and look at the full picture because I'm in under the firm belief that Gavi and Tok did not have the full picture. Now Ratan Singh did not have the full picture. So these are the sort of, they had constraints as well. And these are the social constraints that we ourselves have now is that um, how do we truly dissect what's being, what's being fed to us?
0: Obviously, and this is where, once again, I repeat myself, is that the historian E.H. Carr wrote the book, What Is And in that, he established three principles for textual analysis. Number one being, you need to study the author, who the author was and their times and how those times affected the author. Number two, the times in which the text was written, what was going on, what you know, linguistic uh, conventions, writing conventions were used at the time. And number three, the internal evidence of the text itself. These are the three main primary key ingredients for textual analysis. Unfortunately, what I see nowadays is many Sikhs arguing about, you know, decolonization, that that is a, uh, we're going to use pre-colonial Sikh perspectives. Well, those perp- perspectives do not work today. You know, at the end of the day, those mm-hmm. perspectives have never worked. If I was to use a pre you know Sikh perspective, let's just... Name it that for the sake of an argument. I'm going to say that Bandasing but ba, there was one hundred and one percent a traitor to Sikhi, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Absolutely. one of the yep. And one of these famous uh, Sikh uh, historians approached me after the Singh episode, and he was saying that you know, we can only trust Sikh sources because those sources are one hundred and one percent genuine because people who lived with the Sikhs and who were Sikhs themselves wrote it. It's the same as saying that, you know, currently our perspective of ancient Sparta comes from the works of Athenians, right? It's only now we're beginning to look for written Spartan texts about how the Spartans understood themselves. We have, you know, people like the Shibbers converting to Sikhi and giving their own Brahmanical, you know, perspectives. Obviously, we have to look at all angles. But then when I look at all the other evidence we have today, it emerges that Bandha Singh Badr was not a traitor. He was just betrayed by fellow Sikhs.
1: Exactly. Looking at Banda Singh's topic in particular, you know, there's this narrative, this subtle narrative, that is constantly arising from some sect or from another that he was not true to the cause or that he had not been for the Khalsa. Well, the Khalsa kind of gave up on him. He was stuck at Gurdaspur. He needed support and it just wasn't there. And so, but when you're saying is the cult was not with him to begin with, well, then what are those 800 Shahidis in June of 1716 in Delhi for?
0: That's right. And uh, Dr. Tillo pointed out that Persian sources, Rajput sources, all these non-Sikh sources are agreed that uh, the Mughals set Binod Singh to betray him. Binod Singh's own son Khan Singh kept on giving him information from inside Gurdas Nangal as to what was happening. Massive jathas of Sikhs gathered all across Punjab to free Banda Singh. But because all the information was leaked prior, Gurdas Nangal was isolated and even, you know, Punjab's rivers were blockaded that Sikhs should not be able to sail down to Gurdas Nangal to help him. Banda Singh was preempted on all turns because he had freighters in his camp.
1: Definitely. It's, right. it's just... Yeah, go for it.
0: Yep. So if we take that historic grand perspective that, you know, Sampradaya is right, Babaji is right, Jathe is right, aren't we betraying Bandha Singh's memory?
1: Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. You know, you hear this Sampradaya said that, Jathe Bandi said this, and you you don't get not aside from just the full picture, but you just don't get the truth. And you need to you need to be able to dissect these things and look towards, okay, well, Banda Singh in particular, uh, he had his difficulties. I mean, even as early as when he entered Hisar, you know, and the um, Maja and Dwaba Sikhs were blockaded from crossing the Satluj south into his arms. And, of course, uh, a Sarbat kalta, what I argue was the first Sarbat Khalsa, then was called in late May of 1710 after his win in Sarhind. And, but, it's, it just didn't, it didn't fall through. And so Banda Singh in particular, well, how can how can you fault someone who gave the effort, but in turn, we're being taught that he wasn't he wasn't giving the effort. Right. This is a sort of this is a sort of struggle and the basis in which the bunt is, is in right now. It's it's quite difficult to imagine that we would be here and constricted in such a time. But it's just, I believe, a reality. What are your thoughts?
0: Hundred and one percent. I mean, the amount of threats we receive, the amount of, you know, death threats, particularly we receive because we speak it against this. Uh, narrow perception of understanding history it's just amazing and it's always the usual suspects but it's just amazing when you have you know young teenage children actually making those threats as to you know what's going on you know and if we take the sardar kapoor singh things you know obviously this is one of the reactions we're going to get that sardar kapoor singh drafted the another resolution he was a great leader of the sikhs he is 101 percent right and those same people are going to feed this to their children that the Marathas helped rebuild their bar.
1: Exactly. And this is just the reality of the situations that with, I guess, glad you shared those children or whatnot, whoever are coming at the next, it's just that it's one thing to look at history, but it's another thing to dissect and learn history and be take a look back and understand the actual process of historiography you know i i tell people that um and i'd gotten this of good advice from my an elder cousin of mine that you know i'd i'd done simply just a minors in history he tells me okay well what does that mean to you and i'd said i don't know if i have enough and he says to me that are you are you at where you want do you understand what you're doing and i said yes i i fundamentally From always, I guess, lucky enough to be gifted to understand how historiography works, how to dissect and analyze, not just take in and say it's true. And he says, Well, then you have what you need. Right? So it's not a difficult, it's not a difficult understanding, but you just need to get to that point where you know what you're doing, what you're looking at, what you're consuming, and also how to, I guess, regurgitate it back as. Understanding rather than just blah blah said blah, and so it has to be true.
0: And at the end, Bolo <laughs> that's like a seal, you can't deny it after that.
1: <laughs> absolutely,
0: absolutely. No, thank you very much for clearing up this myth. You know, it's been so enjoyable talking to you, and our listeners will surely love and appreciate this. I'm sure that this episode will prove one of our momentous episodes, but the whole credit for clearing up this myth goes to you. It's amazing the amount of research you have put in, the amount of work you have put in. I was very honored to have you as a guest.
1: I appreciate it so much. Shukri Aji. Um, it means yep. a lot to just to being out here. I I had been looking at Maratha sources in particular, You know, along with Kulakarni, I'd looked at um, uh, Stuart Gordon. He had a publication... And I was looking at um, also uh, stuff from um, Govind Sardesai. Sorry, my apologies. He'd written something in 49. I was looking at James Grant Duff, who had published the first ever um, English text on Maratha history in 1826. And so just, if I can give just a quick rundown, um, they're sharing that um, for the most part that the Marathas were invited. It is simply true. And so you can't, take these propagandists, in all honesty, you cannot take them seriously. Because it is just genuine to say one thing that, hey, I know something, but do you actually know what you're talking about? And um, it's these things that I, I tend to have a tendency to look towards, and I always try and break down and see if, um not to provide any bias, because I myself, I try, I try to be as unbiased, but there's a reality of things where um, when you come to fighting propaganda, you, you flip a switch to a different mode. And I tend to be sometimes on that mode, but, um, with just the reality of things online, but I appreciate it so much for, for contacting me and having me out here. It it truly means the world to me.
0: Yep. And Instagram, Raniti Punjab. Am I right?
1: Yes. Instagram at Raniti Punjab. Um, I, I guess just a little extension. I'm currently writing, uh, quite a long book on Banda Singh Bahadur. And, uh, we'll get that soon, um, no promises on when that's out, it's quite, it's quite cumbersome it's a really big task right now I'd undertaken but we are working on it
0: okay then, thank you very much for your time and your efforts Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh
1: Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh <laughs>